What's up, everyone? Welcome back to a new episode of the Pro Podcast. My name is Penda, your host, and today I am joined by Megan Stubbs, sexologist. Let's welcome Megan. Hey, Megan. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm wonderful. Like you said before, it's a sunny day. And so I can't complain. It's spring officially. We've made it. Well, I would love to just jump right in because your work really focuses on integrating science and sex. So can you tell us a little bit how the two are connected? How did you get started in this work? We'd love to know. It's a long backstory. (laughs) So growing up, I was always that friend you went to ask about sex stuff. And so back then it was, you know, puberty and changing bodies and, you know, crushes and stuff. And so back then all we had was access to books. So I was always in the relationship section of bookstores, you know, trying to read on, you know, what the latest stuff was. And of course that continued as as we were getting older into like middle school and high school. And I was still always that friend you went to, but now it was like, you know, Oh, what's like fingering and blowjobbing. And I was like, let me tell you guys. <laughs> um, it never really occurred to me that this was a valid career option until I went to college. So in high school, I went pre-med because I was like so good at science. I was like, Oh my gosh, let's be a medical doctor. And it wasn't until I was in college where I realized like, Oh no, I can't do chemistry. What am I going to do with this biology degree? And I actually <laughs> saw the word sexologist, I'm sure I'd read it many times, but it clicked in my mind that sexology might be a valid avenue for a career. So I Googled on my dial-up back then, you know, sexology grad school, because that was not a job we saw on career day. And I found a grad school in the country that was offering graduate degrees in human sexuality. And I was like, this is like perfect for me. So I went out and I got my doctorate and I came back and now I'm still hopefully your go-to friend to ask about sex stuff. I love that. I similarly was in college and did a business minor and like calculus and statistics. I was like, wow, okay, whatever I do in life, you know, it's going to have to be a little bit more creative than this. This is all very useful information, but I know I'm not built for this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I love that you said your friends always came to you for sex advice. Is it because you were just, oh, you just you conveyed this openness about the topic always? I think so. Um, Before I knew the phrase normalize the conversation around sex, I think I was just doing that organically because I didn't think it was anything that was shameful or had to be hidden or that was wrong. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like fascinating and cool. And like, look what all these things we can discover. And so I think approaching it from that point of view made my friends feel safe and open to come to me because there'd be like a judgment-free zone. Absolutely. So I am doing a lot of my own research in preparation for starting my own sex toy company and understanding more about female arousal and female orgasms. And one thing that my OBGYN and I have really been having conversations about is the lack of quantitative and qualitative data around female orgasm and how most medical journals study male arousal, of course, and we have Viagra and it seems much more normalized in terms of understanding and articulating male arousal. But I wanted to know from a sexologist and someone who really loves science, why do you think there's such a lack of information pertaining to female arousal? Uh, That's a super good question. We were even discussing this back when I was in grad school. And I think it's it's twofold. First, who's going to fund this? (laughs) We would love to have funding for this, but the organizations that typically fund research in this area are few and far between because people say, oh my gosh, 
um, diabetes research, take my money. Um, oh my gosh, you know, infertility, take my money. We want to study orgasms in women. <laughs> Sorry, in women. And people are like, mm, no, where's the, where's the spin on that? And so let's say we did have funding. Where are we going to get the people to, you know, experiment on? Where's our sample group? So people getting to volunteer for this. And then is it going to be a random sample? That's even a broader reach of the population. So I think it's a struggle on both ends. Right. And I think to your point about the research of diabetes or fertility, the solutions often include pharmaceuticals. So there is a capitalist payoff in the end with female arousal. Where are they going to get their money at the end of the day? Right. With this research. Do you think it's going to change? Do you think there's hope to actually understand more? Or is it like women are just left to our own devices for trial and error? As far as big research grants, I'm, I remain hopeful always, but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. I think we're going to have to rely on people doing small studies. Um, a lot of anecdotal stories, while not scientific air quotes, are still great and valid. Um, so just sharing stories and you know just normalizing the conversation around sex will help normalize the conversation around arousal. Absolutely. And so in your work and in those anecdotal experiences, maybe that you've heard or or your own, what are some very known variables or emotional factors that can help enhance female arousal? Um, first of all, I want make, want to make sure people are, you know, not just thinking that at a drop of a hat, you can just be aroused. Um, you know, you have to feel safe. Are you by yourself? Or are you with a partner? Is this a new partner? Is this a trusted partner? Um, are you discovering each other's bodies? Have you even discovered your own body? So I have so many more background questions going into like, how do I make arousal better? You know, safety is first and foremost. Um, and then maybe if you had any hangups growing up that are impeding you for fully, you know, experiencing arousal or even being allowed to touch yourself or even name your parts. So I want people to feel safe with what they're doing with themselves first and then branch out with their partner if they choose to. And what are some ways to feel safe in your own body and for yourself? I love the idea of you just taking time to explore yourself when you are singular partnered, um, but get to know yourself really well. This doesn't mean you have to just instantly go for genital contact, but really taking the time to explore your body, almost do like a sensei focus kind of thing where you're just going through and knowing, you know, I love when the back of my neck is rubbed or grabbed. That feels super great. I don't like when someone's, you know, touching the back of my knees. Um, so get really clear on those areas of your body and then go into, you know, nipples and clitoris and penetration. And I saw that you're a big advocate for yes, no, maybe list. And I love that as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that tool and how to use it and where it came from? Yeah. So I have a yes, no, maybe list available as a free download <laughs> if you sign up for my newsletter. And by no means this is an exhaustive list of all the sexual activities there are out there. But my list is a listing in alphabetical order of different sexual things you can explore with yourself or a partner. So the way to do this assessment is to print it off. That's, you know, the easiest way. <laughs> then go through and the first thing might be like analingus. So that's eating ass, salad tossing, all those things. Um, and the options are yes, no, maybe. Yes, I love eating ass. Circle it. No, not for me. Hard pass. <laughs> Maybe is like, I don't know about it or I don't know enough about it to be like, yes or no, I'm open. So that's a maybe. So go through this assessment and, you know, there's some things on there. People, people would be like, what is this? I've never heard of this. So 
once you have that done, and if you're partnered, have them take the assessment too, and then come back and compare and contrast, and then make like a sexy Venn diagram where you overlap on the yeses and maybes. And then good information to know. They're like, oh no, I don't like pegging. And you're like, ah, good to know. Absolutely. And I also love about the list that you can track your change and growth and curiosity. Maybe there, maybe Analingus was on your hell no list. And in three months, it's like in the maybe, you know, and yeah, retake the assessment whenever. And it is fun to see if what things have changed and things you're like, I thought I liked it. Now I don't. It's off the list. Sweet. And I've, it's perfect for people who maybe are a little bit afraid to communicate on their own or get a little choked up. It's like, oh, no, here's the list. Oh, yeah. I've got I've got my my needs and interests here. <laughs> yeah. Third party culpability. Like, I didn't think of these things. I just read them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like they somehow just appeared on this paper and I'm reading them and they may or may not be my own thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk about your book because I am so inspired by authors who are taking on this challenge of sexuality and sexual expression, because I do find that there are such few resources that are kind of in present day, modern day dating times, hookups, relationships, et cetera. I love all the older works, but it's time to refresh and come with a new perspective. So how did you come up with the idea for your book? How did you know that you wanted to write a book? Um, I think it's like, career was progressing, I was like, I need to get a book down. <laughs> so it was always a wanted on the wish list of mine. And so my friend connected me with her publisher and I pitched some book ideas and they were like, no, no. Oh, but not the right time. And I was like, okay. And I said, well, do you have any topics that you'd like explored by a new author? And they were like, well, we were thinking about maybe like a single sexuality book. And I was like, wait, go on. This is my life. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, perfect fit because I could use both my own anecdotal single life and then combine with like my professional life into hopefully what I think is a cohesive book on single sexuality. What's the meat of it about? Like, what is the takeaway for single readers? Uh, Unbeknownst to me, the major meat of the book is great for single or partnered people. It's basically how to be happy with yourself as you are right now. So it is called Playing Without a Partner. So this is geared towards single people. But I think if you are partnered too, you can really benefit from all the exercises and insights the first half of the book goes into about making peace with yourself, how to get sexual satisfaction by yourself, um, you know, recognizing your worth and boundaries and all these different things. Um, but I think it's a really feel good book of like just building yourself up. And then if you want to one day go out into the world and find a partner, you're better equipped for it. And so I think this is I mean, I have a lot of friends who are single and a lot of the times people are always grappling with the decisions of wanting to find a partner eventually. But in this moment when you're single, how are you exploring your sexuality and consenting in safe spaces? Are you on the field app? Are you on Grindr? Are you, uh, you know, on Tinder and you're experimenting with threesomes? Are you going to play parties? So what has been your experience in writing the book or what has been the response of people saying like, hey, this is applicable to me and I found this really helpful? I think they mostly just feel like comforted to know that they are air quotes normal. So different things they might be, they might be coming up when they're experiencing, you know, sexuality and like, oh, I'm having these feelings. Is that okay? And it's like, yeah, it's totally normal. And I also want to make sure we're not alienating people who do want to be single as an identity. Like they don't want to have a partner. They might have incidental hookups or whatever. That's totally fine too. And this is also for people who want to be in long-term committed relationships. So I think it's just hopefully validating for wherever they're at in their life to be 
okay with that. And in your experience, how have people who maybe they don't desire to have a partner, what does that look like for them? How do they deal with maybe society putting all of this pressure on them to say, you need to get married. Why don't you have a partner? Who are you bringing to the wedding? What are some tools to just stand in your truth? Uh, Yeah, the book equips you with just, you know, literally standing in your truth and just saying, hey, right now I'm single. I'm not going to pursue a relationship. I'm not looking for marriage. Maybe I don't even want kids. You know, it's just helping you really affirm where you're at and then give you the tools to say, like, you know, this is me. And if you don't like that, that's okay. But as long as I'm happy with me at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Okay, I'm I'm not going to make you give us all of the tools because people should absolutely go out and buy your book and read it for themselves. But I do think it's it's really important to also highlight that perspective of existing and finding love and intimacy with partners that can be fleeting and shorter than long term. And I think also we're seeing a beautiful uptick in the world of ethical non-monogamy and it's becoming a little bit more accepted and perhaps people are finding more suitable partners within this world as opposed to putting so much pressure on like finding the one which I don't know if you believe do you believe in the one no (laughs) (laughs) okay wait let's discuss this for a minute why don't you believe in the one I mean what's our population approaching seven billion Math. Yes. I'm not a mathlete by any means, but the odds are very poor that there is the one. And the odds are that you found them in your same small town of 3,000 people. Let's be real. <laughs> Let's be so real. And okay, so if there's not the one, how would you quantify maybe what your expectation should be in terms of having your needs met? Like, should you date someone who fulfills 70% of your needs and the other 30% like you can get from your family or friends or outside sources. How would you advise people to kind of go about being with someone who is not the one, but the one? I think people need to realize that you can have a lot of happy relationships with many different people. But like you said, it's, you know, what level is enough for you? You know, is there going to be someone who's going to be a hundred percent If you're going out looking for those odds, I think you're going to set yourself up for failure because you're going to find one thing like, oh, they're perfect. But ooh, when they chew with their mouth open, I can't stand it. And you're like, that was the deal breaker. Okay, so giving yourself, I don't know, a buffer of like make a list of like what's my non-negotiables. They have to be an animal lover. They have to want to travel. They can't like onions. I don't know. That's a weird thing. But like, you know, make your list of things that are non-negotiables. And then it's almost like a yes or maybe list now that I'm talking about it. <laughs> and then make a list of like, maybe like, could they have been married before? Are they a different religion than me? Do they have children already? You know, and then what are some hell no's? They're mean to animals. They're mean to the server at, you know, restaurants, <laughs> you know, all these different things. And so many, once you lay that out, that kind of rubric, I think there are many people who will fall into the higher end of like what you're looking for and what you're willing to negotiate on. But if you're thinking there's going to be someone who hits all the high marks and all the low marks they don't have going on, it's a really, I think a rough path to travel. Yes, I agree. And I try to just give the same grace to my sexual partners that I give to my friends. Sometimes my friends don't respond back to my text messages or call me right away. But why do we place those expectations on romantic and intimate partners? So trying to just, Meet people where they're at and understand that there's no perfect person or perfect love. It doesn't exist. Totally. (laughs) Yes. No Disney fairy tales over here. 
but I had briefly mentioned about E&M and I wanted to ask you if you could maybe bring a different perspective to E&M. I think there are varying degrees of this umbrella term and different types of relationships. And maybe some people are familiar with polyamory or open relationships or swingers. So I want to know in your work and hookups and partnerships and maybe conversations you've had, is there a gym or something very unusual that you've heard about someone practicing E&M that you'd love to share? Uh, I think I just like to let the population know or like vanilla people who have no idea what this is that this is not a passing fad. This has been around a long time, even longer than we've seen it in popular media. Um, this is a valid way to have a relationship. Um, it's between consenting adults and this is the path they've chosen to walk and it works for them. And so if that's something you're interested in exploring, know there's a whole community waiting to welcome you into this world. Um, don't feel pressured to be in a monogamous relationship where you might have to lie or cheat or, you know, get around the agreements you've made with your partner to really pursue the things you want to have happen in your life. Um, I just want people to be forthcoming and, you know, honest with what they're looking for. So if this is something you're like looking into or, or like or if you're open to being open, um, know that there's a whole community out there of people who are doing this happily. Um, online is a great resource. So you can go to sdc.com, which is Seek, Discover, Create, which is a whole lifestyle community. Uh, I believe there's some apps now that are just tailored for people who are looking for more than one partner. Um, so it's out there. It's on the internet mostly because especially if you're from some small town in Montana or something, you're going to have a hard time finding a community, I think, locally, but they're out there. And speaking of small towns... I wanted to know if you have any advice or do you have varying advice for our listeners? If you're someone who's living in a city that definitely attracts singles, if you're living in a coastal city, perhaps if you're living in New York City or Los Angeles or Miami and you're like, yes, this is my home. I love it here. But holy shit, it's really hard to meet people who want to settle down. What's your advice for singles who maybe feel just like, whoa, this is a town for having fun but not for long term is do we have to flee do we have to get out like what are our options I think you have to go out and look for it I think the idea of you know you're at the grocery store and someone bumps into you in the cucumber section you're like oh hi that can still happen for sure but go out and seek it out and then also tell your friends tell your friends of friends like hey so and so is looking for a long-term relationship a committed relationship um someone to date and spread the word because when you have more feelers out, the better chance you are to encountering someone. It can totally feel like I'm just surrounded by hot single people everywhere when you live in these, you know, hot cities. But there are people like you everywhere. So the chances are in a more populated area, you'll have a chance to find someone who's looking for the same thing you are. And have you noticed any differences in hookup culture between being in maybe the middle of America versus coastal America? are having sex <laughs> all over the place um all over yes. yeah all over um i think at least here in the midwest we're a little more conservative um so it's not as prevalent or known we don't have any sex clubs as far as i know <laughs> in michigan that are operating but i can think of some in new york and california so i think it just depends on where you are but hookup cultures everywhere it's alive and well you know i'm sure there are probably some sex sex uh parties in michigan maybe i don't know if you're in in detroit but it, that's what's that's what's calling me well sex parties for sure but as far as oh, like yes. having a you know social media presence and being like we're 
we're literally a sex club. <laughs> Go use our address. Yeah. Rather than like, you guys know the code word and know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. I was just talking to uh, Louise, who's the founder of Susia NYC, which is a sex party here in New York. And yeah, they full on Instagram website. Like you fill out a form to be vetted. You know, it's a entirely the very open community that's going on, which which for some people could be a deterrent. It's like, is my photo going to be on the Instagram page? Even with my information. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So I read that you, I read, I read a blog post of yours and you said that it, well, the, the topic was on dating someone with mental illness. And I think that this is such a beautiful conversation to be having, especially post pandemic. I think a lot of us started to realize that we do need to invest more time and energy in our mental health. And, you know, there was such an uptick in therapy. And I've also written an article on how to find a sex positive therapist and how it's so important to find a therapist that doesn't pathologize your sexual needs and desires, but actually meets you where you are without bias. But of course we all have bias, but maybe checking your bias at the door uh, so I would love to talk a little bit about that article. How did you decide to cover this topic and something that you just found interesting and helpful for people? Yeah, I mean, at the time I was dating someone who had mental illness. And so it was new for me, uh, both as a like person in the relationship and also as a professional to really get like an in-depth dive into, you know, what that looks like day to day. And the biggest takeaway is that you can be there, you can support them, but ultimately the journey they're on is theirs. And so there's no like fixing of them. You have to meet them where they, where they are and, you know, hold that space for them because the journey is theirs to traverse. So you can definitely be there with love and support. Um, but it's, it's challenging. It can be challenging. And sometimes you do have to walk away, walk away, especially if it's, affecting yourself so my mom's a flight attendant or was a flight attendant rather and so the idea of putting your own oxygen mask on first is so you know important because if you can't if you're not doing well you can't support them on their journey so you have to make sure that you're doing okay first and then you know go from there but at which point maybe with your partner would you decide to either suggest like couples therapy or deciding that there are things that you want to work on, but maybe need a third party to come in. How do couples actually navigate going into therapy together and really confronting some of some problems within the relationship? Yeah, that can really be a tough conversation to have when you go to your partner and say, we need therapy, you need therapy. But I think using a third party reference, like a podcast or an article or something you read and just said, hey, like, you know, I read about this couple went to therapy and they were able to work through this, this, and this. Are you open to that? That way it takes the pressure off of you for being the one who's seeking out therapy or for them to say like, oh my God, they're coming to you asking about therapy. Like, what do I say? Yes or no. With you saying, I read it in an, in an article, I saw it on a TV show. Are you open to that? It kind of, you know, takes the pressure off of them to respond one way or another. But then once you go into it, you know, it can be confronting because, you know, you're really laying yourself out to this person, this stranger that you hopefully can build a rapport with. Um, but it's an important conversation to have. So I think the way to enter into it is just say like, Hey, are you open to this? And what are some ways that people can confront shame that's maybe coming up for them in sexual experiences? You know, 
Uh, using a therapist is a great way to confront that. Um, they have the tools equipped to help you kind of unpack your past and maybe navigate and see where these messages or feelings are coming from and help you work through them to come into present day to where you are, whatever your problem is, happy um, with your body, how it looks, um, whether or not you have children at this certain age, um, whether you choose to engage in you know a non-monogamous relationship and your family is like, oh no, we don't do that. So all these different things, a therapist is really great for those. Just mentioned, you know, your body and feeling comfortable in it. And I know you're also a body image specialist. Can you tell us what that is and how you got into this work? Yeah. So uh, in my other life, I model. <laughs> so yes. um, I, I am a bigger size woman, not missing any meals here. Um, and so, you know, not seeing that represented in media is... I don't want to say shameful, but just kind of like, oh, what a bummer. But I think now we're moving into a space where more bodies are normalized in popular media and advertisements. And that's super great because all bodies are so different. And so when we're only seeing one kind of look homogenized and we don't even look anything like that, it can be like, am I ugly? <laughs> you know, is my body not worthy of dancing on a beach or you know, going skydiving or all these different things. So helping people know that they're good right now as they are without any, you know, changes made, size dropped or whatever is I think very powerful because once you feel good in the skin that you live in, I think you're less susceptible to the pressures of media or advertisements that are making you think about changing your body to have a insert happier life, skate, you know, skating on the boardwalk with your friends and I don't know, going to wine tasting, whatever they show in commercials, but knowing that you can have those things right now, even a healthy, happy, sexual, sexually satisfied life that's available to you right now. So helping you get happy at the home front is going to help you in so many more areas of your life. It's so, so important to not place any of your future, you know, future goals and hopes and dreams saying like, well, when I'm this size, when I can fit these pants, when I can do this is when I'm going to be happy. You have to start to live in the present moment and create traditions for yourself now. And I know that body image particularly is a very common conversation amongst women, amongst women of color. There's fetishization, hypersexualization. But I would love to know if you have any experience with this pertaining to men, pertaining to non-binary people, to trans people. What have you noticed in terms of body image in these groups? I think that, you know, I always go back to the media. You know, who are we seeing portrayed or exalted in the media? You know, again, this is we're, we're coming a long way. This is great. I love seeing more representation in media. But also keep in mind that this is only a small glimpse of what these bodies and, you know, identities can look like. And so don't feel like if you identify as one way and you don't look like what you're seeing in media or portrayed out there, that your way is wrong. Even if you don't realize that you're internalizing certain images or that certain tropes have been, you know, indoctrinated. But if you're looking at a Target commercial and you're only seeing this kind of married couple, you know, this kind of family unit, Eventually, you you do start to absorb it and you do start to <laughs> compare yourself. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, know that even if you've done all the healing and all the work to have positive body image, these things will still come up. There will be a commercial or a character in a movie or, you know, someone you see on the street where you're like, oh, whoa, 
and it will bring up something in you. You know, this is a continuous journey. There's no like destination where you cross the finish line. You're like, I'm healed. I've got perfect body image. Great. It's always going to be changing. So to be able to navigate that better is wonderful. Is masturbation something you would say can help you along this journey? 100%. So helping people realize that right now, as they are in the current iteration of their body, uh, that that's valid is to masturbate, to realize you can have great pleasure with whatever form you look like. So if you're someone who's like, oh, I hate my thighs, and then you explore and you feel pleasure and then you masturbate and have a great orgasm, and you're like, wasn't that awesome with the thighs you don't like? And then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So, you know, it takes time. But yeah, absolutely. Masturbation and body exploration is a great way to get in touch with your body and feel more grateful for it. One of your blogs said, should I masturbate before a date? <laughs> what is the answer? Please tell us the science behind this. Oh should gosh. we? This, I think, was really spurred on from the movie There's Something About Mary when we were growing up. Uh, is there science behind it? Not necessarily. But I think the anecdotal version of, like, you know, getting rid of those pre-date jitters and, you know, how do you feel after orgasm? Relaxed. So the science behind it. Like, I just want to feel more relaxed is great, but it's not necessarily like, don't go out with a loaded gun. <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe it'll make you feel more relaxed and maybe less horny on the date. I don't know. For is sure. that a thing? Well, like, you're yeah. not like preoccupied thinking about like, I want to hook up with this person immediately after. Yeah. And then you have that post-sex glow and you're like, wow, you look glowing. And you're like, I certainly am. <laughs> Listen, I sometimes, some days when I'm so anxious and feeling so tight, I'm just like, oh, right. Oh, you forgot to masturbate this morning. Right? Yeah. You know? Exactly. So I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a perfect little foreplay pregame before the date. And you're just more in touch with yourself and your body and maybe going into the date feeling a little bit more confident because you're like, hey, at least I know that I can make myself feel good. And that's a really beautiful thing. And you don't place those expectations onto someone during the date. Absolutely. Perhaps. Where is the study for that pre-date masturbation study? I'm calling for it right now. <laughs> maybe maybe you and I are supposed to do that or it's a that masturbation is the topic of your next book, perhaps. <laughs> so I do want to learn a little bit more about science and sex. I know that you spoke about it really briefly, but how do they interconnect really? What what are I guess what are your what is your research like? What are you day to day learning about sex and science? Um, it just really depends. Um, looking at journal articles that come out and just, you know, trying to help us better understand what we're seeing, air quotes, out in the wild <laughs> with people. Um, when we're talking about science and technology, there's a sex toy called the Lioness, which I think is really cool. It's a dual motor vibe, but it also like tracks your intensity of contractions, vaginal contractions. So I think that's super cool. Um, I would love to see like big studies with that done because as you said earlier, it's always focused on penis owners. Like, you know, what's going on with them? And it's like, hey, we have questions too about our vulvas and vaginas and clitorises. So, you know, I think expanding and pushing the envelope when it comes to research and quantitative data is always important. But for me on day to day, it's always just like looking at articles or what's new or, you know, what's just out there. I live in a city where sex is pretty 
common and open. And, you know, people people are walking sex, basically, here in New York City. And I want to know, have you had any pushback in the work that you do? What has been that journey for you? You know, for the most part, I've had a mostly positive response, especially coming back to the Midwest after grad school. Um, I had a lot of friends in media who took chances on me, and I did long stints on the nighttime radio show here. I did the women's morning show for a long time, and it was all really positively received. Um, If I got any hate mail, no one told me about it. (laughs) Um, The few times I have gotten, I guess, a not positive response have been when I was speaking on college campuses and a couple times people have emailed me questioning my credentials or like, you know, asking if I'm going to be nude too. And I'm like, no, you need to pay more for that. <laughs> but just, you know, those kind of weird things. But for the most part, it's been positive. Um, not saying you can't approach this from a very like sexy, like, you know, out there way. But I think I just present it matter of factly and just say like, this is the reality. And so they really don't have any room to say, you're wrong. This is bad. I'm like, argue with me. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's fight. Let's go. Yeah. You want smoke? Here we go. Right. And I don't know if you're single at all, but as m- myself, I am single. I do find that sometimes it's a little bit intimidating leading with, oh, I actually talk about sex for a living. I know a lot of things about sex, no pressure, but you know, I'm, I may be a little bit more well-versed than the normal woman out there. So have you had these interactions maybe with other people when you're dating and hooking up who are feeling a little bit self-conscious because you're the expert? Yeah, this has been quite the journey. And this is also partially why I'm like, I need to write a book because all these bad dates and experiences I've had have been put into the book. And I'm like, I can't believe I wrote about that. But yeah, I'm to the place now where I'm so Googleable. They, they meaning like potential date people don't get my full name. <laughs> I don't tell them what I do um, unless like we've gone on some dates and it's like, okay and cool. But my MO right now for dating, because I am single, is to meet them organically. So I'm that person who's like hoping they'll bump into someone at the cucumber aisle at the grocery store <laughs> or have them pre-vetted through a friend because at least for me, I can't be online. I'm too Googleable and will bring out the weirdos if <laughs> it's like that. So organic me or introduce through a friend is for me. Yeah, I find that interesting. And I go back and forth because pre-pandemic, I was having great luck meeting people in person. I feel that I'm charismatic. I'm not really intimidated to approach someone that if we've made eye contact or I'm definitely sensing some energy to just kind of put myself out there. But as I work from home full time, it was winter, <laughs> no one's outside, you know, the apps were getting ample play. But similarly to you, once the conversation comes up of like, hey, what do you do? It's really difficult to then say like, hey, I work in sexual wellness. I'm starting a sex toy company. Immediately, it seems like the conversation is going to usually lean to sex right away or that people don't take you seriously in terms of wanting an actual emotional relationship, but thinking you just want to hook up. So I can understand where you're coming from. And you said that you shared a bad date or lots of bad date anecdotes. I was wondering if you could maybe leave us with a parting story that we could relate to. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, there's so many. (laughs) 
Let's think of one. I mean, because I've had those dates where the people have been exploitative or think they're going to like wow me or like ask like, oh, what's the biggest dick you've been with? And I'm like, oh, my God. Check, please. Yes, I know. And sorry to cut you off, but also in 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 some of my experiences, I've had really amazing sexual experiences. And then I get on the podcast and I'm like, oh my gosh, last night we did this and that. And then in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because it's probably going to be really upset. Even though I didn't name any names, you know, it's like, but you want to bring your true self and your work to the relationship. But of course, because of the world that we live in, for some people, that's not the ideal person that they want to be committed to oh 100 percent, yeah you gotta find that unicorn not saying the one but the one who's out there who can handle being with yes. a sex a person in the sex world <laughs> exactly exactly but you were sharing oh, uh, a story oh personal i mean uh there was one time i was on a date with a guy and i thought it was going well and so we went back to his apartment And we're like making out and he just like leans back much like a cobra and then spits in my mouth. And I'm like, what What just happened here? And he's like, you're a sexologist. You like that. And I was like, "Mm -mm, no. So I left. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, that's enough. Yeah. Oh, my God. We're done here. And then another time I went on a date with a guy and (laughs) oh, my God, it was terrible. We went out and again, we ended up back at his house. I thought it was going great. And I was giving him head and I was like licking his balls. And I was like, okay, wow. Like he didn't shave. Not a deal breaker for me, but I was like, there's a lot of fucking hair on these balls. And it's like, I'm pulling it off my tongue with my hand. And I realize once the lights are on, we're on his cat's bed. And I'm just like, you didn't, you thought this was the ideal place to like hook up was on your cat's fucking bed hairy ass bed like that i didn't call him back I mean, oh my gosh <laughs> what another you time. Are, oh oh my god <laughs> i can't even okay yes continue okay, please last one another time i was having sex with this guy or we were about to have sex pulled a condom out i was like oh I'm so impressed like you're gonna use a condom and then he pulled out baby oil and i was like whoa what are you, bro what are we doing here and he's like i need lube and i was like oh my god you beautiful idiot like we can't use baby oil in a condom. And he's like, why? I do it all the time. And I'm like, it's going to break. Like, ah, I feel like. Like, I- no, we don't want oil. We don't need oil. Yeah. So I feel like I need to really be looking for someone who's like in the industry or industry adjacent to be like someone who's been around the block and not like a noob. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all of those experiences. Thank you for sharing. And I know. That a lot of women have had similar poor experiences like that. But leaning back like a cobra and spinning projectile spitting into your mouth, honestly, is just vile. That was on my no for the yes, no, maybe. Like spitting, no. Mm-mm. Or I've had guys who like will like lean back and like spit right on my vulva as they're eating me out. And I'm like, in what porn did you see this and think that was the move? That's doing nothing for me except being like, did he just spit on my pussy? Exactly. Like, exactly. Don't do that. (laughs) And it's happened to me a few times and I'm just like, you know, spit dries really fast. Like, this is not a natural lubricant, honestly. Like, we don't need this. And I don't know really what you're getting out of it. 
Uh, maybe it makes just the pussy look more wet. I don't really get it, but I think in this scenario, the cat hair bed takes the cake. There's no fucking way. There's no way. Yeah, it's. I mean, uh. But like, taking hair off of your tongue, I was and I was like, it's so much. I don't understand why. Uh, oh so my god! Even though I'm a professional sexologist, know that I have had bad sex too. Like I am just like you out there. <laughs> <laughs> I've had the bad sex. I've also had the great sex, but the bad sexes are the stories that we share. <laughs> Those are the ones we share. And honestly, I think there's that's the girl code. It's like when you've had a poor sexual experience, we share it because oh, we're like, y'all. This is what we're not going to do. This is not acceptable. If this happens to you, if you match with this guy on Hinge, this one I'm like showing all my friends, don't, yeah. don't, don't go to his house. He's, there's he's a cat hair. Yeah. He's a spitter. He's got like six cats. There's really hairy and he's a spitter. Like <laughs> Exactly. That's in college. We would like share our sexual experiences to save the next woman after. I'm like, yeah, this is feminism. Truly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Megan, it's been so wonderful speaking with you. I would love to know more about where we can find your book and your work and support you. So please let our listeners know. Penda, this has been so great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Sexologist Megan on all the social medias and you can find anything you want about me on sexologistmegan.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in another episode and we'll catch you next week.